0: you very much for that very generous introduction um, I've actually um, added a subtitle the case of world literature um, not because I thought this was going to be as it were terribly original I was aware that uh, other people would have talked about it before and it, I thought it would sort of to some extent bring things full circle um, but also um, offer an opportunity to scrutinize some of the concepts that we've been talking about um, which I think a particularly interesting focusing on this question of world literature as a term and concept so and to some extent we're going now from the, the summits of literary achievement and jokes in heaven um, to the um, sort of murky depths of uh, what comp lit criticism has made of the concept because i think there are um, certain problems with that process Um, Partly, my interest in this stems out of my general interest in metaphor, understood as a feature of language that gives us insight into and is used as an expression of thought and concepts. And I've just um, put a quotation at the beginning there that I won't um, go into, but just to to sort of, as it were, situate where I'm coming from. Um, And more specifically, the interest has arisen um, out of an interest in how we conceptualise comparative literature, comparative criticism... Um, which I find myself engaging in, in the context of teaching a a module, a a course um, for our Masters in European Languages, which is called Spaces of Comparison, and I convene this with Patrick McGuinness. The question of how we conceptualise comparative literature, comparative criticism, seems to me to surface in the terms that have gained currency in the discussion of the theory and practice. And I think we've had quite a bit of that in the course of the conference in very interesting ways and in um, very, sort of, in in many ways, very concrete ways with, with very specific examples. In fact, it strikes me that comparative literature is not a useful term in that it seems to conflate the critical activity with the object of study, and I've always had that difficulty with it. Um, And comparative criticism, um, I find better. It's precise. It's essentially descriptive. um, It's not in any obvious way metaphorical, which I think is actually an advantage in a critical term. At the centre of the paper, though, um, I've put the term world literature, um, which um, is, seems, to, seems to be actually on the ascendancies judging by the, by the, by the survey that we heard. So I think it, 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 this, this will raise some questions that are worth debating. Um, the paper is intended then to step back a little from the specific authors, traditions, and contexts we've been hearing about in order to take a look at the conceptual metaphors that are in play when we engage in comparative criticism, and what the implications are of the choices we make. The reason I think this is worth doing is that the business of comparative criticism encourages ways of thinking that are rather different to those prevailing in literary history. Put in the most general terms, literary history gets us to look at literature in terms of time, while works Um, and works primarily within linear models, chains of influence or reception and alternations of opposites configured in terms of linear cause and effect. That's quite a clear structure that one's working with, with clear reference points. Meanwhile, comparative criticism encourages us to look at literature more in terms of space, and this different way of looking at literature opens up both special pitfalls and special opportunities for arguably the choices of metaphor are less obvious and the metaphors themselves offer a less clear and predictable structure, and therefore also less clear um, points of reference for conversations about um, the subject. Proof that comparative criticism tends to favour spatial models is offered by the central importance of the concept world literature, with which our conference opened. And yesterday evening we heard that the term world literature then was um, gaining prominence in the complete um, landscape. While Goethe did not coin the term, and we don't actually know whether his disciple Johann Peter Eckermann reported his comment verbatim, as we've um, already discussed, the statement published by Eckermann gave world literature normative force, validated by the stamp of a world-class authority. And it's worth revisiting the statement as a whole, and I've just simply given it as a quotation, for it set up the model on which much theory of comparative criticism is based. I'm not going to read it and I'm not going to go into detail, but um, should simply like to focus on the fact that Goethe presents himself here as the, the kind of model world reader. The statement gives world literature a clear shape, endowing it with temporal and spatial features and setting it in a clearly structured binary opposition with national literature. On the one hand, the statement configures literature or poésie as a grand anthropological universal by comparison with a limited cultural space of national literature. On the other, it constructs a temporal line that extends from national literature in the past to world literature in the future. Those who espouse the values of national literature are moving in a narrow space, he says. They are parochial in outlook and pedantic. The person who espouses the values of world literature, on the other hand, is open-minded, looks beyond the confines of his immediate cultural context and stands for progress. The teleological model suggests that world literature is superior to national literature, both because it constitutes a much bigger space and because it embodies the goal of the development, the telos. It's important to here to bear in mind that Goethe is engaged in a conversation, that it's a conversation that is being reported as such. The statement works as an argument because it serves to establish a clear hierarchy between entities and it gains its effect from conflating different metaphors. So, firstly, world literature as a possession, i.e. an object, then world literature as a timeless spatial entity that consists of national literatures, And world literature is a temporal entity that is configured as being further along a developmental path than national literature. There is also implicit, um, potentially, and that comes out more strongly in other um, statements by him, um, the the sense of a sort of canon that um, can be implied by the literature. But that doesn't seem to me to be central in this particular statement. There's enough conceptual structure to establish a value relationship between national literature and world literature, but it's not a hierarchy that focuses attention on a salient or superior point. It leaves the critic in a space where all the structures have been dismantled that shape the enterprise of the critic who is concerned with a culturally specific bounded space. Goethe does not supply any alternative structures to shape world literature or points of reference to guide the comparatists of the future. This is unproblematic so long as world literature is embedded um, in a specific binary opposition, and so long as it is not assumed to be a critical concept and term with some kind of essential meaning. However, it's grown to be the most salient trope of comparative literature and comparative criticism. In this process, the relationship between the words world and literature loses its point of reference, and the metaphor loses its vivid force, if metaphor it is at all. This can cause difficulties for the critic, as is evident in studies that base their approach on this concept. We can trace this in Susan Bassnett's Appropriation of Goethe's Metaphor in Comparative Literature, A Critical Introduction, published in 1993, when she suggests that anyone who has an interest in books embarks on the road towards what might be termed comparative literature. So we can see that road there. Comparative literature is here the goal of a journey, an unbounded space in which the critic finally comes to rest in order to explore connections that are freed from all constraint. Basnet offers us the following list. Reading Chaucer, we come across Boccaccio. We can trace Shakespeare's source materials through Latin, French, Spanish, and Italian. We can study the ways in which Romanticism developed across Europe. And she then goes on, and this is on your handout, There is no limit to the list of examples we could devise. Once we begin to read, we move across frontiers, making associations and connections, no longer reading within a single literature, but within the great open space of literature with a capital L, what Goethe termed Weltliteratur. Now, what this literature with a capital L actually really signifies is a bit hard to pin down, but she doesn't really particularly need us to pin this down. She adopts Goethe's metaphor but populates it somewhat differently. Instead of placing one individual at the centre as the explicit example, she envisions her readers as part of a collective we, each travelling along an individual road in order to arrive in the same unbounded space. Having thus opened out the space, she then abandons the metaphor, suggesting that world literature can also be seen as a history of violent debate. She very quickly simply lists questions and then summarises them with reference to what René Wellick defined as the crisis of comparative literature, which then becomes a kind of sort of alternative goal. Basnett highlights that comparative literature as a term seems to arouse strong passions both for and against. This is a quote. I would suggest that a reason for this is the indeterminacy of the Gutian concept, the fact that the space in which critics construct their projects has no boundaries to constrain it, no criteria for selecting individual heroes to people it, no linear traditions to determine the relationships between works, authors or movements. The danger is that the critic resorts to an assumed superiority of their endeavor, to passionate denigration of more closely-bounded projects, or simply to rhetorical panache. David Damrosch's um, What is World Literature, published in 2003, um, seems to me a case in point. The book offers a motto from the Communist Manifesto, which draws on the Goethean statement while giving the metaphors (coughs) a political thrust. This is on your handout. So the motto then in Damrosch's book, the intellectual creations of individual nations become common property. National one-sidedness and narrow-mindedness become more and more impossible, and from the numerous national and local literatures there arises a world literature. The illustrious provenance of the quotation gives Damros' study political street cred, but he only touches on it later without pressing the shift of signification that comes with a change of context. It ends up being no more than embellishment. Goethe, however, then becomes explicitly central to Damros's introduction, which is entitled Goethe coins a phrase. Now, of course, we know that actually, potentially, he didn't coin the phrase in a sense. It's Eckermann who did so. It begins with an extensive quotation of Goethe's conversation with Eckermann, which then provides the basis for a tour de force on ever more slippery concepts of world literature that then converge on three competing ideas. Damroche says, world literature has often been seen in one or more of three ways, as an established body of classics, as an evolving canon of masterpieces, or as multiple windows of the world, on the world, sorry, or as all three. Damroche here effectively abandons the metaphor of the world and substitutes alternative metaphors fudging their difference by permissively embracing them all. Later, he adds a further dimension of complexity to his argument by saying, or by, by emphasising the shaping force of local contexts in order to, as he says, distinguish world literature from a notional global literature that might be read solely in airline terminals unaffected by any specific context whatever. The world's literature is not yet sold by a border's book without borders. The glibness of the point concerning the resistance of true literature against market forces is strengthened for the post-2011 reader by the fact that the powerful borders book chain no longer exists. The inappropriateness of the association highlights that a sudden terminological distinction is here supported only by a fanciful scenario that masks confusion of concepts by the sheer force of negative vibes. Damrosh is given to mixing his metaphors. Yesterday, we heard a quotation that exemplified that tendency, but this is not just a stylistic problem, it's above all a conceptual problem. He uses metaphors and comparisons with gay abandon in order to support normative judgments, with a master metaphor of world literature creating a kind of high ground that gives legitimacy to any argument that can be derived from it by a process of association association that may be affected by the elements of the metaphor or by concepts such as the body of classics, the canon, or the window, which seem meaningful because they're critical commonplaces. World literature, I'd like to suggest, then, is a useful term so long as it is used essentially descriptively and also, above all, so long as it's clear what exactly it means and what it's doing. And it's useful especially as a term to define the object of study in contrast to culturally and linguistically specific literature or national literature. But it's useful only to the extent that it is not assumed to imply norms, selections and values. And the more metaphorically rich it becomes, the less useful, I would suggest, it is as a critical term. Damroche exploits the combination of structural indeterminacy, indeterminacy and associative potential offered by the concept of world literature for an undisciplined variety of purposes, populates the world with authors and texts that seem to be designed above all to exhibit his accomplishments as a world reader and endows it with local specifics when convenient. His approach exemplifies the dangers of metaphor, dangers that are exacerbated when a lack of constraints is assumed to justify arbitrary associations. The pitfalls evident in Damrosch's book suggest that much more care needs to be given to constraining the choice of metaphors and disciplining the processes of association they generate. The more indeterminate the metaphor, the more important this becomes. Damrosch is correct when he observes that the term world literature has been extraordinarily elusive But the answer cannot be to simply pile meanings and associations into the term so that it seems as if the question, what is world literature, has been answered. Rather than asking what world literature is, we might ask what purpose the concept can serve. Here, we might say that the concept and term world literature forms a useful starting point for comparative criticism and that it makes literature conceivable as a human universal And invites adventurous, open-minded exploration of texts across cultures, beyond the critic's linguistic comfort zone, and outside the canon and other hierarchies. It invites the kind of mental travel Goethe advocates in his conversation with Eckermann. And it invites the kind of critical scrutiny of, for instance, genre, genre assumptions, um, traditions, um, and connections that we've um, engaged in today, but it, and yesterday. But it doesn't give us a means of defining what we will find there or how to evaluate it. If we're to do something more precise within world literature, there are advantages to making this provid- uh, project evident by an obviously rich metaphor. And um, Pascal Casanova does so in her book, um, La République Mondiale des Lettres, from 1999, translated in 2004 as the World Republic of Letters. She says at the start, the purpose of this book is to restore a point of view that has been obscured for the most part by the nationalisation of literatures and literary histories to rediscover a lost transnational dimension of literature that for 200 years has been reduced to the political and linguistic boundaries of nations. In what follows, I will speak not of world literature, but of international literary space, or else of the World Republic of Letters. In moving from world literature through international literary space to the World Republic of Letters, she initially divests the term world literature, which has gained the critical high ground, of its authority, and then gradually enriches the metaphor and begins to develop it into a concept that offers purchase for a complex, ambitiously constructed argument. She offers an account of her project in language that makes sparser use of metaphors than Damros, while fashioning them into instruments that are more precise and guide the reader along more clearly demarcated pathways. Rather than abandoning the temporal dimension of literary historiography in favor of a purely spatial metaphor, Casanova draws on the early modern concept of the European transnational Republic of Letters, selecting a metaphor with a richly elaborated tradition, but modifying it in order to make us see the space of world literature in a new way. And rather than simply examining the historical processes that characterised the early modern Republic of Letters, she she uses the insights and questions which the spatial endeavours of comparative criticism have generated in order to change our perspective both on the past and on the present. In Casanova's book, the world ceases to appear as a nice travel ground where the gentleman of leisure can dip in and out of countries at will. It is an embattled place in which political forces are at work and where power games are played out. Metaphor, the metaphor of the republic, helps us to understand what is at stake. Constrained and focused in this way, metaphor can become a powerful, useful, and illuminating critical tool. It can provoke us and invite us to engage in a debate focused on specific concepts. The metaphor that forms the title of Casanova's book serves to generate questions and it structures answers. These are neither timeless nor absolute, and it's the strength of the metaphor Casanova chooses that it remains visible as a concept that is as strong as it is relative. Metaphors, I'd like to suggest, are tools that can be powerful, but also dangerous. As with tools in real life, we can't do without them. But unlike tools, metaphors will creep into our work without our noticing that we've picked them up. Our selection of metaphors needs to be conscious and meaningful, because to a significant extent, the choice of metaphor will determine the comparative story that unfolds.
1: So yeah, my paper is about temporality uh, in how you construct a comparative uh, project. So my paper addresses the question of to what extent the concern of temporality should influence or justify the construction of a cross-cultural comparative study. So what I mean by temporality in comparison is the time scope of the compared elements. So for instance, Two texts that are compared can be contemporaneous by date, or they may fit into a similar historical scale, such as modernism, period of industrialization, classicism. Uh, well, these, um, this kind of similarity is not exactly contemporaneous. Sometimes there are some mismatches, um, but they are considered to be similar by the development of certain aspects of civilization for instance, language and writing, aesthetics, or changes in economy. So, for instance, if we say classical Greece, it involves the time span from 500 to 300 BCE, roughly, whereas classical for Chinese means around 500 BCE to 200 AD. Or one can compare the Chinese modernist literature of the 1920s with 19th-century European modernist works since Chinese modernity started later than European modernity. And then finally, uh, compared elements in a comparative project can be also just desynchronous, which means they just don't match up in time, such as comparing the, I- the understanding of infinity in, for instance, uh, the Renaissance philosopher Nicholas de Cusa from the 15th century and infinity in ancient Chinese cosmology for instance. Now, among these three kinds of temporal frameworks for comparative studies, the first and the second are predominant, whereas the desynchronous type is rare, especially in comparisons that involve Western and non-occidental cultures. If we browse existing comparative studies, we would find, for instance, uh, quite a lot of comparisons between ancient Greece and ancient China. So these are some examples of comparative studies. So, for for instance, Lisa Ralph's um, "Knowing Words: uh, Wisdom in Classical China and Greece," Nathan Steving and Jeffrey Lloyd's "The Way and the Word," and uh, Reddin's uh, two thousand and four study of um, Greek sophists and Chinese rhetoricians. And then we get, for instance. Um, Greco Roman and classical Indian philosophy and art. And we had William Jones yesterday, but also say in, in French thought, we have Georges Dumézil, who did a lot of studies on Indo European mythology, where he was a bit structuralist and matched up different structures of gods in um, Greek and Roman mythology with Indian uh, religious thought. Um, and then we have, for instance, modern Japanese novels and 19th century European novels. For instance, um, Jameson's article about Sosaki and Western modernism because there's this um, view that uh, Japanese modernism was heavily influenced by the West and therefore uh, to compare uh, the Western modernists or 19th and 20th century would be a very appropriate uh, way of mm, constructing a comparison and then for instance we have uh, 20th century Brazilian literature and European fin literature especially French and post because French literature is considered somehow the paradigm in, in Brazil especially in the 20th century so from this preference for contemporaneity and similarity in temporality it seems that a relatively common time frame is assumed to better justify the comparability of compared elements. So, I would like to question whether similar temporalities between different cultures can really justify a comparative project. So, f- in fact, there are many problems with constructing interpretive contexts around commonly shared temporalities. Firstly, there's a problem of how to understand and justify the ideas of time and history. So different cultures have different stages of development and understandings of what is considered development and whether development is desirable at all, because there can be cultures who would like to regress rather than progress sometimes. Um, And what does a specific time measurement alone, such as simultaneity, say about any two cultures? So for me, it does not seem to say very much more than that two cultures coexisted simultaneously. Moreover, if these two cultures had little or no awareness and knowledge of each other, can they be said to be contemporaneous, although our globalized calendrical system puts them on the same time scale? So take example studies that compare ancient Greece with warring states China, within the time frame of fifth to third century BCE. There is certainly nothing objectionable about the choice of this historical period as long as the comparison offers insight into the issues of study, but the view that the Greek states of fifth to third century BC are contemporaneous with the Chinese states of fifth to third century BC is misleading and simplistic because every culture has its own time and measurement of time, for instance, historical records, and what we call the 5th century BCE can be seen as such only in one particular time measurement system, which is our Roman solar calendar that has become standardised and globalised. Moreover, this uniform time view is essentially Newtonian. Time is seen as linear, irreversible and universal. So um, five o'clock on the earth would also mean five o'clock on the sun. But um, after the revolutions in modern physics, such as relativity and the recognition of non-Western paradigms of time in anthropology, nobody can unquestioningly accept such a mechanic and totalizing time view. This critical questioning of a globalized time view already Uh, has been carried out in certain studies, such as Barry Dayton's Time and Space, published in 2010, and Gary Westphal's edited volumes on space and uh, literature. So we should remember that the establishment of universal calendrical time that systematically and uniformly dates the totality of recorded human existence is a recent phenomenon, and it has been established gradually during the process of globalisation. Time itself has a history too, or more precisely histories, since different cultures have different conceptions of time. Before our global temporal norm, different people lived on their own time scales, situated themselves in relationship to their own perceptions and experiences of history, and were unaware of or relatively uninfluenced by other timescales and histories. So um, coming back to look a bit more specifically at um, say a comparison between ancient Greece and China because I'm more a classicist in in the Chinese sense. Um, So given that uh, the ancient Chinese and Greeks had no knowledge or very little knowledge of each other and they did not have a common measurement or conception of time or history to relate to, Although they exist simultaneously, they can also be understood as desynchronous from each other. For instance, if you tell a Chinese person living in 460 BC that someone in Athens was engaging a certain activity, this made little more sense to this Chinese person than telling him that someone in a city called Sparta was doing something else uh, in, say, 200 years later or earlier because this Chinese person has no notion of either Athens or Sparta. Although 460 BC Athens is different from say 660 BC Sparta, they do not relate historically, culturally, or geographically to any known experience of this Chinese person, and therefore um, cannot hold significance for him as they would for us living in 2013 with our global map and calendar implanted in our minds, in contrast, from our viewpoint, we can relate the ancient Greeks to the ancient Chinese more easily than they could to each other. This is because the mutual awareness of cultures and the contact between them, sometimes even the one-sided knowledge of one culture of another, are more important than their simultaneous existence in the same or different spaces. In this sense, it is not absurd to say that ancient China is more vivid, more meaningful and contemporaneous to us in the field of knowledge and thought that encompasses different times and spaces. Uh, well, more meaningful and contemporaneous to us than to the Greeks of the same period. So uh, I would argue that historical periods dated as contemporaneous may have nothing temporally in common with each other. whereas periods dated as disparate may on the contrary be contemporaneous to each other in the sense that each of these periods have reached within their own time frames the stages of development that manifest the levels of sophistication or concerns that can be comparable or similar to each other. Ernst Bloch, in his argument in The Heritage of Our Times, uh, he has an argument of the contemporaneity of the non-contemporaneists. And he uses this um, on the, he bases this on the unevenness of different cultural and economic developments, especially those produced through different degrees of capitalist uh, modernization. But I think his rethinking of simultaneity is also some kind of, a temporality that exceeds temporal measurement by the calendar. And this is very revealing and can be used to question the time frame in comparative studies. Now, similar historical periods do not guarantee a justifiable comparability, nor do disparate periods necessarily pose problems for comparison. So, uh, I think that misconceptions about the supposed simultaneity or similarity of historical periods is one of the most important but insufficiently addressed issues in comparative studies so far. In fact, the very understandings of disynchronicity and simultaneity should be contested before any justifications or doubts about comparison can be made. Since this question of time frame often affects the comparatist's choice of what to compare, which means it constitutes part of the comparatist's understanding of comparability, uh, I would like to consider the importance of time frame by considering a few studies that compare between both contemporaneous and desynchronous periods. So I will focus on what is put into comparison and dialogue, and then see whether the crux of comparison significantly depends on temporality. So, uh, to start with, studies with a time frame of comparison which include desynchronous periods. So, we have uh, Miriam Leonard's Athens in Paris, uh, which frames the widely disparate periods of fifth to fourth century BC Greece, with post-1950s in France. And her book explores the ways in which the writings of ancient Greeks played a decisive part in shaping the intellectual projects, especially notions about limits of democracy and tyranny of the French structuralists and post-structuralists. And she compares Derrida's deconstructive essay, Plato's Pharmacy, with Plato's Phaedrus, and juxtaposes Foucault and Sophocles by considering how Foucault took Oedipus as a representative of the oppressive allegiance between knowledge and power which underwrites the dominance of modern liberal democracy. So uh, the core of her argument is around how debates about political thought in classical Greece and post-war France connect to each other Uh, the desynchronicity of the 5th century B.C. and the post-1950s is not really an obstacle to her comparison, but in fact makes it more interesting. So um, the other study, um, Karen Carr and Philip Ivanhoe, study on sense of anti-rationalism compares the early Chinese thinker Johnson and Kierkegaard, which is 19th century, uh, and they present a reasoned uh, rejection of the reductive systematization of rationalism. And like uh, Leonard's work, um, although the time frame is very widely disparate, uh, the comparison does not really uh, is not really affected by this disparity. Now to move on to the uh, contemporary, uh, the similar periods. Uh, so we first have Jean-Paul Redin, Le Fondement Philosophique de la Rhetorique chez les, chez les Sophistes Chinois. So uh, this is a very good work, although it's not translated into English. And sh- He compares the 5th century BC Greek sophists, such as Protagoras, Georgias, Hippias, with 4th century BC Chinese rhetoricians, like Gong Sun Long and Hui Shi. So his book examines the central notion of a sophistry, teaching techniques of persuasion that are highly useful in political and ethical debates to gain students and followers. And then he concludes that the Greek notion of sophistry does not exist in China, although Chinese rhetoricians developed highly sophisticated forms of speech. So the proximity of historical periods across Greece and China plays a very small role in the comparative discussion. And the Greek and Chinese rhetoricians are disconnected from each other because they are also mutually unaware and they're also using radically different languages. Um, And if we turn to another work, a comparative work, Misaki Moro's Epic Grandeur, and he examines Western and Japanese epic traditions to argue for a new concept of the epic and he compares Keats the Fall of Hyperion and uh, Miyazawa Kenji's Ginkatsu um, Tetsudo uh, no Yoru, Night on the Galaxy Railroad, and uh, Kenji is also late 19th century, early 20th century, so their periods are pretty much the same or similar. Uh, so in the aspect of how both Keats and uh, Kenji exemplify a trance transitional epic that departs from the conventional norms of the epic, and once again, although their periods are similar, in fact, the core of comparison does not have much to do with with temporality. So uh, from the examples I've given, uh, I would like to propose that the core of comparison is located in the connectability of ideas their mutual complementation and clarification, rather than the difference or proximity of their historical eras. This shows that maybe time frame is not so important in comparison, or in fact the act and thought of comparison is more spatial rather than temporal, because uh, conceptually speaking, the comparatist juxtaposes different elements from different contexts, and examines their interrelationships and interactions. Comparative thought thus reflects how, in the realm of thought, everything can coexist despite their differences. Um, so, so, this is just some images. Uh, uh, so, I was just saying, comparative thought is kind of a mixture of specialities, and you can think about it in an image metaphor, such as the Klein bottle where one space, for instance the outside, ends up uh, as another, as the inside and every space is connected but non-orientable in a a definite direction. Uh, And since comparison does the same thing to different temporalities, it also means that comparison is to a certain degree anachronistic, at least in the linear and very historical sense or maybe we need alternative temporal models to think about comparison such as non-linear and non-universal uh, time forms uh, to um, and for instance using another non-euclidean geometrical shape temporality is a comparison can be like a nervous strip which is the upper um, image um, and uh, um one side of the strip always goes to the reverse side but then finally all sides are connected and of course the complexity of this mixture of temporalities can be multiplying this is another example Uh, and of course uh, this kind of image metaphor is a convenient way to uh, visualize comparative thinking but I want to bring out how it is very heterogeneous and um, juxtapos- uh, juxtapositionary um, rather than uh, saying that these are you know, models to think about because I think actually comparative thinking is much more complex than any image and um, the, the question of whether time or temporality can be visualized is also very important because... A lot of uh, the difficulties um, thinkers have encountered in thinking about time is because they try to visualize it as a certain geometric shape. Whereas, um, well, say, as Leibniz said, something that you can't visualize doesn't mean that it's something you can't understand conceptually. So sometimes you can conceptually understand something, but it's not possible to put it into an image. Um, yeah. And so just to come to my conclusion uh, I do not think that temporality necessarily poses restrictions on the scope of comparison Uh, and in fact one of the strengths of comparison is precisely its ability to surpass temporal and spatial boundaries and connect different temporalities and spatialities in meaningful ways although there is nothing objectionable to constructing comparisons around texts and problems from similar periods it would also be interesting to see more studies that compare and connect elements from desynchronous contexts. Thank you.
2: Uh, I am aware that actually you may not know who uh, Michel Deguy is, a uh, leading um, uh, contemporary poet, philosopher. Actually, Derrida I referred to him as the French Danker-Dichter. Uh, Par excellence. So, uh, Michel De Gui really, uh, I would say, is the kind of, well, the, the authority these days in, uh, well, certainly is a leading poet philosopher, and, uh, the founder of the Collège International de Philosophie, editor of the um, journal Poésie, and editor of Letton Moderne, etc., etc. In our world of hyper reality, as described by Baudrillard, the French poet philosopher Michel De Guy sees his mission as that of an iconoclast who uses poetic image to counter the deluge of inane screen images. Indeed, image is no longer what it used to be. The biblical in his image has been reduced to mere simulation or, indeed, cloning. Dougie deplores what he identifies as this assimilation to the facsimile of his imitation. You've got the French, I think, cette assimilation au facsimile de son simile, which, of course, makes use of dizzying, uh, paronymy, and tautology. This kingdom of false duplication is very reminiscent of Guy Debord's Society of the Spectacle. De Guy has named it le tout culturel, because pretty much anything qualifies as cultural. This tout culturel is De Guy's Bête Noire, a hodgepodge of false values, he would say trashy values, the tyranny of deadly uniformity, a uh, singerie. Singerie means clowning, to ape, to mimic. Epitomized by, I quote, the technical iconic imaginarium of the US. These are Dougie's words. They are not my words, so forgive me.
0: <laughs>
2: oh, yes, of course. I'm sorry. Um. So this Technico-Iconic Imaginarium of the US is a monster that swallows everything up to produce, I quote, the anthropomorphic narcissism of Disneyland. Its technological reproductibility makes it insidious, toxic, vampiric. And the rest of the world suffers from a mimetic contagion. In the pervasive two culturel, differences are blurred. Culture and fake culture become entangled. Uh, you've got the quotation, I think. L'omnipotence du culturel noie le poisson de la différence entre le bien-être et le faire-oeuvre. So the cultural basically evades the difference between well-being So, a debased form of culture and le faire oeuvre to create, of course. So, the result is an amalgam, a leveling down. The prophecy is a rather ominous one, and you will, of course, recognize the references. I quote, C'est eugéniquement que l'homme inhabitera cette terre. Uh, Man will. Uninhabit inhabit this planet eugenically. Therefore, the poet iconoclast concerned with poetic dwelling resorts to rhetoric to resist the simplicity and hyper-visibility of spectacular, between inverted commas, image. It is the privilege of art to ensure diversity, to put us in touch with in-betweenness, Alterity and absence. The poet aspires to being some kind of polygenicist who devises a pensée de l'hospitalité or pensée de la différence as an antidote to eugenics. Dougie's mission is to recomplexify reality, to re inject strangeness and difference into our world. Mallarmé was doing just that, transposing the perceived world into a riddle, and make space for the Baudelarian unknown. Dougie describes poetic imagination as the host of the unknowable. Against the danger of assimilation and confusion, the poet chooses hospitality. Etymologically, host is the stranger, which is about welcoming and accepting the other in their otherness, in their strangeness, as the other, as the same, and not the same. In its quest for rapprochement, an obsession, a leitmotif, poetry fulfills its vocation as hospitality. It relies on an ethical practice of comparison, as being both rapprochant, bringing together, and dislocant, dislocating. Thus, producing presence or proximity, as well as distance, thus contributing to the elaboration of a poetics. ethics. In the wake of Breton and Desnos, De Guy recognizes that the comparative coordinator Com, as or like in english is necessary to mark analogical distance francis Ponge was also intent on disclosing the differential quality of objects to enhance their specificity duggy insists that lettre com spelt with a hyphen being hyphen um, as or like is not being in the image of, which means that comparison amounts to, I quote, holding together being and not being in being as or being like. Far from being a mere device of identification, comparison refers to the relation of being like or being as, être comme, Notre existence est d'être comme, our existence is being like. Dougie, who actually describes his life as le mystère du comme, is adamant. Comparison maintains the right distance and reciprocity as well as it cultivates incomparability. Difference opens up the possibility of comparison, which in turn guarantees the preservation of that difference. Therefore, comparison is a truly intellectual and ethical operation. The relationship produced by comparison retains a fruitful heterogeneity and points to an element of irreducibility. Dougie's poetics of affinity seeks to be analogic, As well as analectic, uh, i.e., not comparable. According to Henri Méchonique, it is in its juxtaposition of two elements that lies the syntagmatic originality of comparison. The comparative particle com is endowed with a pouvoir de retardement, a delayed action mechanism or as Breton would say, a power of suspension. If metaphor in its vividness imposes its vision, comparison, on the other hand, proposes a vision. Comparison contains a promise of endless possibilities. It expresses a potentiality, no more, no less. It does not state what is, but rather what could be, or could have been. It is non-assertive. This is like that, as opposed to metaphor, with its rather snappy, this is that. Metaphors and comparisons are both fictions, but comparison is just a more virtual one. It is a possible reconfiguration of the world. It is a correspondence that gestures towards the other. The whole raison d'être of a poem, according to De Guy, is that it proposes a possibility. It instills possibility into the world. Comparison is innumerable. Its range is infinite. With with each new spontaneous relationship reactivating the search, the poem is scrutinizing itself and the possibilities of comparison. This is actually your next quotation. So la vie comme un chant inégal, gal, etc. And we come back to comme la vie. So it goes round in circles to actually come full circle. Being is actually located in the gap produced by the com, which comes in different guises ad infinitum. In this transfiguration of reality into possibility and vice versa, poetry opens up existence to its being in questions, and there is no answer. This is the next quotation. La poésie ouvre l'existence à son être en question sans réponse. Comparison disfigures the existing representation of reality in order to offer a new, perhaps more fundamental, figuration. This suspension is, this suspension is reminiscent of Ricoeur's interpretation of metaphor whereby primary first-degree reference is dismissed and a new reference is produced. Dougie's scholarly puns and neologisms achieve just that. The world is, according to Dougie, that which never stops revealing itself to a logy. The polymorphic visible comes into being through a polyphonic logos. Dougie's axiom, ce qui a lieu d'être ne va pas sans dire hein, what has grounds for being doesn't go without saying, does emphasize the reversible nature uh, betwe- of, of topology and tropology, hein, topos and logos being reversible. Lieu, of course, means place, but ce qui a lieu d'être, uh, grounds for being, lieu de, marks, a kind of condition, or entitlement, or justification. Dougie's role is not to describe the world, but to take care of the, I quote, Remembrement des tropes. So uh, Remembrement actually is badly translated into English because it's translated as consolidation. It's a consolidation of plots of land being brought together Remembrement, so remembering, uh, putting back together uh, members. But of course, we can play on uh, remembering, um, because I think it works very well, too, here. In every utterance reverberates what Dougie calls le jeu figural d'un sens multiple, the figural play of multiple meaning. Dougie rejects any taxonomy of figures in favor of the whole process of figurality, as theorized by Laurent Gény in La parole singulière. There is more to comparison than meets the eye. Interrogating the potency of com. Henri Mechonique defines poetry as, I quote, the open sesame of a new relationship, of the possibility of mystery. Indeed, Dougie dreads the time when the sound and fury, the fury and mystery, here a a reference to Char, when the turmoil of Wagner and Turner will have vanished. Poetry, indeed, is about generating equivocation, equivocation. In the wake of Aristotle's rhetoric, Dougie argues that the use of tropes amounts to speaking in riddles, and that the vocation of art is to enigmatize. The rhythmic pulsation of the poetic thinking of com being, uh, not being, being as, like, contributes to counteracting the debilitating inertia of his Bête Noire, le tout-culturel. His rebellion creates a spasmodic rhythm through a lyricism of displacement where différence, spelt with a a ni, uh, becomes différence with a a ney. It is not surprising that Degui's discourse relies on cherry picking to the extent that Jean-Pierre Moussaron calls Degui diabolical (laughs) in the (laughs) etymological sense of the term, in the sense of a protean compiler whose own discourse is constantly infiltrated by others. For somebody who admits to always living in the urgency of rapprochement, reading becomes a practice of comparison. It fulfills a compulsion to bring together things that have never been brought together or that have not yet been brought together. Apart from reading, traveling and translating are modes of investing alterity, through disfiguration, coinciding with oneself by going out of oneself in the encounter with alterity. The poet's ironic self-scrutinization and restless disenchantment generates a relentless energy of despair. L'énergie du désespoir is the title of one of his books, subtitled une poétique continuée par tous les moyens. Uh, Par tous les moyens means carried out by all possible means or by fair means or foul, or indeed by hook or by crook, or at all costs. So you see what is at stake in, in in his poetics, poetics. This is the energy of the self whose multiple postures are a way of proportioning his life to nothingness. Poetry's paradoxical mission is to re-enchant by disenchanting or vice versa. Poetic imagination provides the only way out of negative image. Comparative thinking is heuristic in that it multiplies comparative possibilities in order to fight excessive simplicity, which leads to fanaticism. The background of Dougie's preoccupation with hospitality is Auschwitz and Hiroshima, which sharpened the awareness of one's generosity as a human species. Dougie cares about our common destiny our common humanity, and he spells uh, commune with a hyphen, comme une, as, like, one. Dougie's ethical impulse thrives in the expression le commun des mortels, le comme hyphen un des mortels, ordinary mortals in English, by hyphenating comme un, and comme une, Degui draws attention to the necessity to preserve and respect difference. That's why Degui is fond of the archaic verb comme, used by Montaigne, which retains the adverb and conjunction comme. And penser, thinking, is definitely compenser. uh, Thinking with, but also to compensate. Ultimately, it is about liberating humanity from its image, inventing a common come on humanity, articulating it comparati- comparatively. There is a reason of comparison. He says, comparaison vaut raison. The world may have lost its reason But there is a poetic reason. This is the title of another book by De Guy, La Raison Poétique, in the intertwining of poetry and ethics. So maybe as a a conclusion, you will grant me a um, Francophile conceit. Uh, Vive la différence, (laughs) (laughs) really.